Amen. All right, look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter number 2. We're going to focus in and verse number 11. Verse number 11, the Bible says, Lest Satan should get an advantage, excuse me, lest Satan should get an advantage of us. And then it says this, For we are not ignorant of his devices. I want you to turn to Genesis chapter number 3, verse number 1. Genesis chapter number 3, verse number 1. So I'm going to be general at this point on what the topic is about. Uh, I'll get more specific in a moment, but I'm preaching about one of the devices of the devil. One of the devices of Satan. Now what is a device? A device is a method or a plan. It's a strategy or a trick that is used, as the text says, to get an advantage over another person. It is a specific strategy or a trick that a person utilizes, that a person uses so that they can get an advantage over another person. And this can come in all different forms and it can be all different types of things, right? So I want you to look with me at Genesis chapter number 3. Genesis chapter number 3. This is the very first appearance of the devil or of Satan in the Bible. And the device specifically that I'm going to be preaching about tonight is the most dangerous device of the devil. It is the emphasized device of the devil. It is what Satan is more so, other than anything else, characterized by, and that is subtlety. Subtlety. So I want you to look with me here at Genesis chapter number 3. We're going to begin reading in verse number 1. Genesis chapter number 3, verse number 1 says this, Now the serpent... That's, of course, the devil, Satan. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. So this is the introduction. This is when we are first introduced to the character of Satan or the character of the devil. And I want you to notice that the very first description that's given of the devil or of Satan is what? That he's more subtle than any beast of the field. You know, uh, this is why he is likened unto a serpent repeatedly after this. Of course, he, he did actually manifest in the form of a serpent here, but he's also likened unto a serpent. It makes perfect sense why he would have manifest or possessed a serpent also, because this is a characteristic of a serpent, that it is very, uh, you know, uh, uh, one of its devices is subtlety. It is very subtle. Now, I wanted to define the word subtle for you, because uh, this isn't a word that we use very often today. It, very rarely, and we don't normally use it exactly in this type of context. So the word subtle today, we would usually use a word more like cunning, or maybe like crafty. Uh, you know, there's also the word, you know, wily, right? Like wily coyote. We, we, you know, in the Bible it talks about the wiles of the devil. That is talking about him being subtle. It's talking about tricks, right? It's talking about him being cunning or being a very crafty person. If you ever watch a serpent, if you ever looked at a snake when it's, when it's uh, crawling around, you know what it looks? You know, you know how I would describe the way that a, a snake crawls on the ground? Is it's it's kind of smooth, isn't it? The way that it just smoothly glides. You know how it looks just in appearance? It looks very crafty. Or it looks very cunning in the way that it moves around, right? The way that it attacks, if you ever looked at how a serpent will attack its prey, it's very subtle. It's very, it comes up and, and you know, will lurk behind them and watch its prey for a little while. But even its movements, even when it's not going after anything, it's very subtle the way that it moves around. You can barely hear it moving around. It's very crafty and it's very cunning. This is the most dangerous element of deception. 
This is the most dangerous device that the devil has. That's why it's emphasized in the Bible. That's why Paul talks about how it's important for us not to be ignorant of his devices. Now, how does this manifest itself in Genesis chapter number 3? Well, the serpent shows up and what he does is he comes in and he, and, he, and he begins to speak to Eve. But let me ask you a question. Does he just outright tell a lie to Eve? Is that what he does? Not at all, does he? He just asks a question. That's all that he does. He just asks a question to Eve. And what's the purpose of the question? question exactly. Questions can be dangerous sometimes, right? Questions can cause you to doubt things that you shouldn't be doubting, things that are true, things that you shouldn't even be doubting, right? And that's the purpose of the question. So does he come in and does he himself just lie? No, he comes in very what? Very subtly. Very smooth. He's very crafty. He has a strategy. I want you to notice that. That when he comes in, he's not just mindlessly, he's not coming in like a bumbling fool. He comes in very smooth, very subtle, and he sneaks in and then he just asks a question. Yea, hath God said? He just asks the question and what does it do? The question is formed in such a way that it causes you to maybe cast doubt in your mind in a way, right? To cast doubt upon maybe something that you knew to be true, something that maybe you shouldn't be doubting, right? And in this case, that's a perfect example of that. So I want you to notice that it's very, it's very subtle. The serpent is very subtle. I'm going to be preaching this evening on the subtlety of a false prophet. The subtlety of a false prophet. I want you to go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter number 11. 2 Corinthians chapter number 11. Now a person who wants to deceive you is not going to come to you and just tell you the full lie of what they want you to believe, are they? They're not going to just come to you and just, you know, the very first thing that they say is just an outright statement of what they want you to believe, right? If a person has a strategy to deceive another person, that's not the way that it works and that's not the way that Satan operates. When we look at Satan, we're not ignorant of his devices. What's one of his devices according to Genesis 3.1? His first device that's mentioned. It's being subtle. So when Satan comes to us to deceive us, how is he going to do so? He's not going to come to us and just outright just tell you a lie, right? He's not going to come to you and just, you know, whatever he wants you to believe, just go to the end goal immediately. That's not what he's going to do. He's going to come in subtly. If somebody wants you to believe a lie, do you know what they'll do? They'll take the truth. They won't start from scratch. They'll take the truth and then they'll just pervert the truth, just sprinkle on enough corruption and enough lies to make it out to be what they want it to be. To make it out to have the, you know, uh, uh, the understanding of what they want you to believe or what path that they want you to go down. They'll sprinkle on, and obviously, you know, how much, how much lie do you have to add to the truth to make it not the truth? Any at all. Any at all. If you add you know, any falsehood to something that is pure and good and right and true, it just becomes false. Right? I mean, just think of how, how simple that is. Just you know, The basic way to do this, when I used to uh, preach at the, uh, a, a boys' ministry, I demonstrated this by just adding one word to a statement. You know, I, I remember I wrote it, they had, a, they had an erase board, a dry erase board, and I just wrote you know, on the dry erase board, Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. And then I just you know, wrote in there like a couple of words. I would just add a couple of words. Jesus you know, did not. Or I, I can't remember exactly how I worded it, but I did it in such a way to where I just added one word. Just one word. That's how I would do it. I'd write the first statement, Jesus did die for the sins of the whole world. But then all I got to do is just add. It's very, it's, it, you know, it all stays the same. You know, it's the original truth. That, that's true, right? 
And all you got to do is just plug in one word. Jesus did not. Just the one word. Jesus did not die for the sins of the whole world. All you have to do is just add a little bit of a lie. Right? Just, just a tiny bit. Just 1% of a lie. If there's any falsehood at all, it all becomes false. It, every bit, it's just the whole statement, the whole book. If there's anything in here that's not true, it's just, it's not God's word. Right? If you add any falsehood to the truth, it's no longer the truth. So what the devil does is he doesn't start from scratch. He's not going to come to, to, to Bible-believing Christians and try to present to you Islam and try to present to you, you know, the Quran or the Book of Mormon or, you know, you know, some just way out there religion that everyone is well aware of. It's false, right? You know what he's going to come to you? He's going to come to you and try to be very subtle. You know what he's going to come to you? He's going to, he's going to come to you and he's going to try to look like a Baptist. He's going to try to act like a Bible believer. He's going to try to tote around a King James Bible. He's going to try to come to you and you know what he's going to look like? He's going to look like you. He's going to act like you and he's going to talk like you and he's going to speak like you. Otherwise, he knows you wouldn't believe it. But when he comes, he comes and looks like, hey, this guy's a part of the truth. This guy believes the truth. But he comes and he, but he's got a little, one little negative seed that he has in his message. He has this little lie that he's bringing along with him. And the whole reason why he came was so that he could plant that 1% that of falsehood in your mind. That 1% of falsehood in maybe the message that you preach. Because you know what that does? Turns the whole thing into a lie. Turns the whole thing into being false. I want you to look with me here at 2 Corinthians 11. Look at verse number 12. The Bible says, But what I do, that I will do, that I may cut off occasion from them which desire occasion, that wherein they glory, they may be found even as we. And then it says this, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their work. So there in verse number 13 he tells us that these types of people, these people that he's talking about in verse number 12, he says that such, these people, are false apostles. Then he says that they are deceitful workers. That they're deceitful workers. They're lying, aren't they? They're not really who they say they are. They're false apostles. They're, they're pretending to, to be an apostle. They're feigning to be an apostle. And it says this, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. There were real people that went around at the time of Paul that tried to make themselves look like an apostle. That tried to act like an apostle. That tried to, you know, look and appear like an apostle. Maybe dress like an apostle. Walk like an apostle. And talk like an apostle. Do you know why? Because they knew that that's the only reason why or how they would be, they, you know, someone would buy their lie. They knew that if, you know, they came into Valiant Baptist Church and they were, you know, dressed and act like a Pentecostal, you know, in spite of what people think, they, you know, they wouldn't be accepted here and people wouldn't buy their lie. It would, get, it would be a giveaway. Who here is fooled by Benny Hinn? Share of hands? Nobody, right? Not one person. Who here is, fooled, is, is being fooled by the Pope? Anybody? Not even slightly. You know, you don't struggle with sometimes, you know, maybe thinking that the Pope might be a man of God, I doubt, right? Nobody. But do you know who could fool you? A false prophet that's a Baptist. 
a King James Bible guy. A guy who, who claims to believe salvation is by grace through faith. You know who could fool you? Is a guy who tries to act like you and look like you. And you know what that characteristic is when somebody does that? It's being very subtle. What is, what is another way you think of subtlety? It's where just a little bit is changed, like I mentioned. It's 99% right, but only 1% of a lie. Right? That's a very subtle change. It's a change like this. Here's a good word for it, like a nuance. Just a nuance. Just something very specific. Right? Just one little small thing. Just that little one little small thing is different. What it is is, they take that which is true, they take that which is right, they take that which is good and holy, and then they just change it just enough. They just change it just a little bit. Just a small little change. You know what it is? It's a subtle change. Just enough that hopefully you, can, you won't notice it. Because they don't want to come in and for it to be obvious. They're just hoping that you don't notice it. Just that little small change. It's a subtle change. This is Satan's most dangerous attribute. This is how he caused the fall of mankind. You say, why did Eve, why did she bite? You know, no pun intended there, right? You know, when he lured her in. Why? Because of his subtlety. I want you to think about that. What caused the fall of all mankind? Deception, yes, but specifically the element of deception was subtlety. Was that he came subtly. He came very subtly. He wasn't very obvious and open. You know, he didn't show up to Eve, you know, where he, he's red and he's got a pitchfork. He's ha 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 ha, right? That's not what he looked like. He came very subtly. He came and he acted friendly, obviously, didn't he? And he just asked her a question. And was the question, you know, was the question just, uh, just purely a lie or was it just, just a question? Did he make a statement in the question? No, he just, he just asked a question, right? He said, yea, hath God said. So what was the purpose? He wanted to be subtle. He came in and that was his device. His device was to be subtle. I want you to look with me there, 2 Corinthians 11 now. I want you to look with me, get there myself. Look at verse number 1. So stay there in the same chapter. Compare what we just read. I want you to think about the context. I'll tie it in a little bit. I want you to look at verse number 1 now. Would to God ye, ye could bear with me a little in my folly. And ad, indeed, excuse me, and indeed bear with me. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. So notice there in verse number 3, he says that he is afraid that there would be someone that would come in and would deceive them. And the method or the device by which that they would deceive them was what specifically? Through subtlety. So he was afraid that somebody is going to come in and deceive them away, deceive the church at Corinth, away from the Lord by what? By subtlety. In the exact same way that Eve was deceived. So who's going to come in? Of course, Satan. Of course, the devil. It says that your minds, I want you to look at the end, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. The message of the gospel is a very simple message. It's a very easily understood message. It's a very basic message in order to get saved. You know what people do is, they corrupt the message by trying to make it complicated. They corrupt the message by trying to make it complex. Look at verse number 4. It says this, For he that cometh 
preacheth, for if he that cometh, I'm sorry, preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit, which, we have, which ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with them. So here's a couple of things are mentioned. Three things specifically are mentioned. The gospel, Jesus, and then a spirit, another spirit. And he's afraid that there might be another person that would come by and through his subtlety, a false teacher through his subtlety, would try to deceive them away from the simplicity that is in the true Jesus, the simplicity that is in the true gospel, and with the right spirit, and using subtlety, he would deceive them away from that. Verse number 5 tells us, he says this, For I suppose I was not a wit behind the very chiefest apostles. So he makes a, 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 an allusion, he alludes there to other apostles. Talking about another person coming in, and then he makes the statement about, hey, you know, I wasn't you know, a, a wit behind, is that how he words it? I was not a wit behind, he says, the very chiefest apostles. Then... He goes into more specifically what he's talking about when we get over to verse 13, what we read earlier. Who were the, these apostles that he's alluding to that would bring in this, this false Jesus, this false gospel, and this false uh, spirit? It's false apostles. So by what means are they working? By what means do these false apostles or these false teachers, these false prophets, what do they do? They come in subtly. They come in very subtly and they try to just barely change just a little bit. They don't come in totally different. You know why? Because they already know. They have a goal to deceive you. And they know you won't buy that. They have a goal to come in and try to corrupt a whole church and then a couple of generations down the road, then from the pulpit is being preached a false gospel. So what they do is they sneak in and they act like you. They dress like you. They talk like you. They like to sing the hymns. They speak like you do. Right? But you know what? There's something a little bit different about them. There's just a subtle difference. They have this little bit of a difference about Jesus or have this little bit of a difference about the gospel. I want you to go to Galatians 1. We're given a little bit more information about this. I want you to notice the parallel between where we were there, 2 Corinthians 11 verse 4, and what, what we're about to read here in Galatians 1. <clears throat> Galatians chapter number 1. This is spoken of again. Paul again is worried about the church at Galatia having a false prophet or a false teacher, you know, creep in. This is obviously common. He's writing a few different churches about this. I want you to notice that it's the same though, because it's the same devil that's behind it. That's where these attributes, that's where these characteristics come from, of being subtle. And this is the most, as I said, the most dangerous element of deception. Look at Galatians 1, look at verse number 6. He says, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Now I want you to notice that he says that they were called into the, gra the grace of Christ and they're removed from that into what? Another gospel. So right there, what's the difference between the grace of Christ and then the other gospel? What's going to be one of the differences? No grace, right? No grace. Or... I want you to think about this. Maybe it's 99.9% .9 grace. But there's like a little bit, 0.1% works. What is it? Is it still grace? It's the same concept, isn't it? Now when we study the book of Galatians, do you know what the people that are the false prophets that are preaching and teaching, do you know what they're saying that you have to do to be saved? 
circumcision. Let me ask you something. I mean, obviously it's painful, right? But is that like the most difficult thing to get done? Is it super difficult or super hard to get done to be circumcised? It's not super hard, is it? It's not that difficult. I mean, it would be painful. It would be, you know, a, a, a mind-wrenching process to go through. Of course, up to that point, at that point, and then the healing of that, it'd be, that would be terrible. But is it a super hard task to, to go through? Is it the same as, like, keep the whole wall? No, it's not. Is it super hard? So, if we were to, like, put it on a scale of how difficult it is, it's not, it's not super, super difficult, is it? It would, wouldn't be that hard, you know, to go out and just get circumcised. That's the only thing you had to do. Right? But let me ask you a question. Is that, is, the, is that the gospel of grace? Adding that? So does it, is it a huge change? Just in the sense of the whole spectrum. Some people out there say, hey, you got to keep the whole law. Is that as extreme? Just being circumcised? It's not as extreme, is it? It's not as extreme. You know what it is? It's a subtle change. It's just a small little subtle difference. You know what you got to do? You have to be circumcised in order to get to heaven. That's what you have to do. People do the same exact thing today. You know what they say? You got to be baptized to go to heaven. Now let me ask you a question. Is it super difficult just to get baptized? It's not, is it? Excuse me. It's not that hard. But let me ask you this question. Is that the gospel of grace? It's not at all. So what needs to be added to it? Just a subtle change. Just a subtle difference. Just a tiny bit of a change. Notice it's the same devil every single time. Whether it's today, in 2019, almost 2020, or whether it was, you know, 60 AD with Paul. You know what they do? They come in and they're just like, hey, you got to do this little small thing. You want to be saved? Well, hey, I know that it's, you know, we're all saved by grace. And what do all of these people say? What do these, you know, let's, let's look at the church of Christ. Let's use them as an example because they're the big toters of what? You just got to be baptized to be saved, right? People that maybe say, hey, you just got to, you know, believe in Jesus and be baptized. What gospel do they think that they're preaching? Do they say, hey, we're preaching the gospel of works? No, of course not. They still say, hey, we're preaching the gospel of grace. It's the exact same gospel. That's what they claim. But guess what? It's just a subtle difference. They claim that it's the, the, the gospel of the Bible. They claim that they're preaching the gospel of grace. Look at, keep with that in mind, look at verse 7. So I want to finish, read verse 6, because that's going to help us understand verse 7. So look at the, the, the just read verse 6 one more time. There is no uh, breaks in, that, in any of that statement. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. Now, doesn't that sound contradictory, just on the surface? He explains what he means. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. So this is what he's saying. He's saying, excuse me, it's not a completely different gospel. It's, it's not like, you know, a completely different religion. It's not Islam. It's not, you know, you know Mormonism, whatever you want to refer to as. What they, try, what they do is they come in and they claim that they're preaching the gospel of Christ. They claim that they're preaching the gospel of grace. But do you know what types of strategies they use? They just make a subtle change. Just a subtle difference. Just a small little difference to it. And you know what it is no longer? It's no longer the gospel of grace. It's no longer the gospel of Christ. It's the same message with just a little bit of a change. It's the same message with just a little bit of a lie put on it. You know what it is? You must be circumcised. Do you know what that makes that right now? 
not the gospel of grace. Just word it that way. It's no longer the gospel of the Bible, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at what it says next. Look at verse 8. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Now that is extremely strong language. And this is Christ, I'm sorry, Paul speaking to those false prophets that snuck into the church at Galatia. And we're trying to peddle this message of, hey, you need to be circumcised. Do you know why? Because these weren't just your regular, you know, run-of-the-mill, average Joe guy that's just confused about the gospel. These are people that are purposely coming in. They have transformed themselves into, you know, the ministers of righteousness or the ministers of Christ, and they're trying to pretend to be an apostle. They're trying to pretend that they're in the truth, but on the inside, they're rotten to the core. On the inside, they have a, an agenda that they want to come in and they want to corrupt the truth. They want to corrupt the true gospel. That is what they want to do. So they come in, you know what they do? They just try to just spread this message of their gospel, or if you want to go ahead and say this the way that's worded here, the gospel of grace, just a little bit different though. Just, just a little bit of a lie that's added. What type of change is that? It's a subtle change. So if we look around today, we need to stop looking at the Benny Hens. We need to stop looking at all these obvious false prophets. And hey, yeah, they need to be called out as well. But if you are trying to beware that you don't fall into a trap, what brought Eve down? It was the subtlety. What was it that Paul repeatedly was warning the Christians about? Not these whack jobs. Not, he's not warning them about, you know, the people that are just going around claiming Judaism. He's warning them about the Judaizers. Those that say, hey, we're Christians too. But then they just bring in this, just this subtle change. People that claim to believe and preach the right message. You know, who, who claim to be an actual apostle. Walk like Paul. Talk like Paul. Right? But then they just had this subtle change. If you're going to be deceived by someone, it's going to be you're going to be deceived with, by someone that just made a, just a subtle change to the truth. Who, just, who brings in what appears to be the truth on a platter, but there's just a little bit of a difference. Just a subtle change to it. I want you to go with me now. I want to, I want to look at something. We've looked at this before. Uh, but I want to go to Genesis 27 in this context. Genesis chapter number 27, and I want to show you the best picture, symbolism-wise, the best picture of a false teacher that exists in the Bible. The best picture of a false teacher that exists in the Bible. Genesis chapter number 27. Jacob. Jacob is the best picture, I believe. And I tried to rack my brain, but of specifically a false teacher or a false prophet, of someone that's better than this. I tried to rack my brain, but... Jacob, in this specific context as well, I believe, is the best picture of a false teacher or a false prophet. What do they try to do? They try to creep in, right? They try to creep in unawares. So are they going to be someone that you're just going to detect right away? Of course not. You're not going to just, you're, you know, your false prophet alarm or false teacher alarm just isn't going to go off right when you see them, right? They, they just have subtle differences. Now, would anybody here detect Jacob? Who thought that sounds crazy when you said that, right? Well, that's, that's the point. You, know, you wouldn't expect the person that ends up being the false teacher. You wouldn't expect the person that ends up being the false prophet a lot of times. I want you to look at Genesis chapter number 27. We're going to begin reading in verse number 1. 
I want to go through the symbolism. A lot of times you can learn great truths from, symboliz from uh, uh, symbols in the Bible and symbolism uh, that maybe uh, you can't learn elsewhere. Uh, and it came to pass that when Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau his eldest son and said unto him, My son. And he said unto him, Behold, here am I. And he said, Behold, now I am old. I know not the day of my death. Now therefore take, I pray thee, thy weapons, thy quiver and thy bow, and go out to the field and take me some venison, and make me savory meat such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless thee before I die. Now the Bible from Genesis chapter number 1 all the way to this point has been following a line of what? of the messianic seed, of the messianic line, right? It's a lineage or a genealogy that it follows. And the whole Bible does that all the way until Matthew chapter number 1. And then you're given that whole lineage or genealogy laid out in Matthew chapter number 1. And I want to ask you this question, who was the rightful, the rightful seed? The, the, you know, if you will, the righteous, who was supposed to be of that righteous seed, that righteous genealogy? Who was supposed to be in that? Jacob or Esau? Esau was. Esau was supposed to be the you know, uh, rightful uh, uh, descendant, if you will. The inheritor of the birthright. The inheritor of the blessing. Now, we know that Jacob, and his name is supplanter, by the way, which is deceiver. We know that Jacob already had deceived Esau one other time for his birthright. And right now, what... Isaac is getting ready to do is he's getting ready to bless the rightful seed. He who actually deserves and is supposed to get the uh, uh, blessing, isn't he? And of that seed, that, that seed, of course, and, and you know, there's the, the physical aspect of it, but you know, the, the, that, that seed is often likened unto a spiritual seed many times throughout the Bible. So I want you to think about that while we're going through this. And Esau himself depicting the righteous seed. Esau himself depicting, you know, uh, that which is, you know, uh, maybe the saved born-again believer. The King James Bible toter, right? He walks and acts a certain way, right? He walks and acts a certain way. Esau had certain characteristics. I want you to look at me in verse number 5. And Rebekah heard when Isaac spake to Esau, his son. And Esau went to the field to hunt for venison. And to bring it. And Rebekah spake unto Jacob her son, saying, Behold, I heard thy father speak unto Esau thy brother, saying, Bring me venison, and make me savory meat that I may eat, and bless thee before the Lord before my death. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice according to that which I command thee. Go now to the flock, and fetch me from thence two kid goats, of, uh, two kids of the goats, and I will make them savory meat for thy father, such as he loveth. And thou shalt bring it to thy father, that he may eat, and that he may bless thee before his death. I want to ask you a question. Was this just a spur of the moment? Did he just lie to him like this, or was this planned? Was this strategized? Was there thought that went into this? He actually planned this from the beginning to the end, didn't he? He actually sat down and he strategized. I want you to think about this. He had a device, didn't he? That's what that means. 
He had devices. He had a strategy. He had a plan. He had a certain way that he was going to come in, and this was thought out, and he was going to come in to the tent, or to you know his house, and that represents what? The church of God. Right? It's like the tabernacle of the Old Testament. And he's going to come in and he's got this, you know, this plan of doing what? Of deceiving his father. Of deceiving Isaac. I want you to look next at what takes place. It says in verse number, uh, let's read 11. And Jacob said to Rebekah his mother, Behold, Esau my brother is a hairy man. And I am a smooth man. My father peradventure will feel me. And I shall seem to him as a deceiver, and I shall bring a curse upon me, and not a blessing. And his mother said unto him, Upon me be thy curse, my son. Only obey my voice, and go fetch me them. And he went and fetched and brought them to his mother. And his mother made savory meat, such as his father loved. More symbolism, if you will, is if you try to uh, you know, uh, pinpoint every aspect that you can. If Esau represents the false prophet, who does Rebekah represent? Satan. Esau would be the instrument by which the Satan is, is you know, trying to bring about his deception. Right? Or I'm sorry, Jacob in this case. Jacob would be the, the instrument by which he is trying to bring about his deception. And Rebekah would be... The, would be Satan. She would symbolize Satan in this, in this particular uh, you know, uh, analogy, if you will. She's pulling all the strings. That's why the same devil that deceived Eve had the same attributes of the devil that was coming in and sending in his new instruments. It may not have been a, a possessed snake this time, you know, but it's this guy that's dressed up like a, a false prophet. He looks like a, you know, a false apostle. Or he looks like an apostle, but he's a false apostle. Look at what it says in, uh, where do we leave off? Verse 14, did we read that? Read verse 14 again. And he went and fetched and brought them to his mother, and his mother made savory meat such as his father loved. So I want you to notice, this is, this is strategized. It's something that his father's going to like. Look at verse 15. And Rebekah took goodly raiment of her eldest son Esau, which were with her, in the house and put them upon Jacob her younger son. So right here what we see is we see Satan dressing up his minions. We see Satan dressing up the false prophets and the false apostles. Matthew 7:15 says this, "Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves." So I want you to think about that parallel with what is he being dressed with? It's being dressed with, in this case, Jacob's, uh, I'm sorry, Esau's clothing. Jacob is being dressed in Esau's clothing. But furthermore, think about the, the, the uh, parallel with the, the sheep's clothing and, and uh, uh, in Matthew 7 to look at verse 16. And she put the skins of the kids of the goats upon his hands and upon the smooth of his neck. So notice that this is a very close parallel. It's an extremely close parallel. So he, he, does, he wants to go in there, and what does he want to make sure that he does? Does he just come in wearing his own attire? Does he just come in there and he just looks like himself, Jacob? No, he makes sure that he dresses up like Esau. Because if he comes in there, the only way that he's going to be able to deceive his father is if he looks like Esau. The only way that he's going to be able to deceive people in the tent or deceive people in the, in the tabernacle is what? 
if he looks like his brother. He has to look like Esau. Look at the next verse, verse number 17. And she gave the savory meat and the bread which she had prepared in the hand of her son Jacob. And he came unto his father and said, My father. And he said, Here am I. Who art thou, my son? So notice that he's asking the question. Why? Look at verse number 19. And Jacob said unto his father, I am Esau, thy firstborn. I have done according as thou badest me. Arise, I pray thee, sit and eat of my venison, that thy soul may bless me. And then he goes on, verse 20. And Isaac said unto his son, How is it that thou hast found it so quickly, my son? And he said, Because the Lord thy God brought it to me. I want you to notice that in verse number 19, verse number 20, there's a lot of skepticism, if you've ever picked up on this, in Isaac's voice, isn't there? Isaac is very skeptical. Notice how he says, Who is it? Now, he was waiting for Esau to walk in, wasn't he? So, it would make sense that he was just... Hey, Esau, right? That's who's supposed to be coming in the door. But he noticed that there was something different. He noticed that there was something wrong when? When he heard the voice of Jacob. Now, he looked right, right? He had on all the attire. He even smelled right. So he had transformed himself, but there was something wrong, wasn't there? He heard his voice, and you could tell there's skepticism. And then he asked him, hey, how did you find it so quickly? How did you find it so fast? And I want you to notice the false prophet in Jacob. It says this in verse number 20. Jacob said, and he said, because the Lord thy God brought it to me. So notice that he's preaching or proclaiming in the name of the Lord a false message, isn't he? Perfect picture of a false prophet. He's, he's saying that something is true in the name of the Lord when it is in fact not true. Also, that savory meat and all of that, that, that is, um, that's representative of the, the flattering aspects of the false prophet. If you remember, in 2 Peter chapter number 2, it tells you that they have men's persons in admiration for what? For advantage. Now, what's a device? It's something that helps you get the advantage over somebody else. And what does it mean to have men's persons in admiration? It means that they go around and they're admiring everybody's persons, right? Like, hey, that's a great tie clip you got on there, Brother Russell. They're just going around and trying to pick out different things. I love those shoes, Brother Anthony. And they're just trying to constantly just like make people feel good about themselves, right? I can't find anything good about these two guys, so no, I'm just kidding. But they go around and they have men's persons in admiration. They're trying to admire things. You know what that is? It's a flatterer. It's somebody who's trying to present something. They want to they make sure that within this relationship that they can build trust by what? By telling you things. Because that's what people tend to do, isn't it? You kind of you tend to put your guard down when you're given something that you like. Or somebody says something to you that you, that you like. Now, if there's a person that comes in and they're just like, hmm, you're going to kind of be weary of that guy. It's just human nature, right? There's something wrong with him. He doesn't like me, right? People will be like that. There's something wrong with that guy. You know, he's, he's not nice. But when somebody comes around and they're kind, they have all of these positive characteristics, they're going around flattering you all the time, it, you know, this is just human nature where you put your guard down and you end up what? You're being more you know, susceptible to what? If it's a deceiver, they're devices, right? That's what, what, did, what did Jacob do? Now, of course, he had to bring the meat anyways, but you know what he brought in? He brought it something that his father loved. And this is a characteristic of a false prophet. This is a characteristic of a false teacher. You know what they'll do? They'll have men's persons in admiration. Why? For advantage. 
They don't really mean it. They're just a flatterer. They're just lying to you. You know what they want you to do? They want you to put down your guard. And oftentimes, in the Bible, false prophets are the most rotten, devilish, wicked people on the inside. Over and over and over again, they're likened unto being a wolf. Over and over again in the Bible, they're, they're, they're like ravening wolves in the Bible. You know what they are? They're a predator. And oftentimes, you know, they're, they're a, a sexual predator, if you will. And they're just looking for any opportunity to pounce. That's why, hey, you know, you, know, you should, uh, you, you know, the Bible talks about, hey, charity believeth all things. But you need to watch your children very closely. You need to, you know, not allow your children to be alone with anybody, even people that you trust. Right? You need to watch your children because sometimes it'll come from an area where you're not prepared or you weren't ready. Do you know why? Subtlety. Subtlety. They come in and you wouldn't expect them. They come in and it's, hey, it's Jacob. I mean, he's the, you know, he's the, he, he's the, the prince of the nations. Right? Isn't that what his name is? He's the prince of the nations. I mean, he is the father of the nation of Israel. You would never expect Jacob. Jacob would never do that. Not a chance. But what took place? He snuck in to deceive his father, didn't he? Spoke in the name of the Lord and was lying. And that, we may blow over that, but that's, that is wicked as hell. That's super wicked. He's like, hey, how did you find it so quickly? He doesn't just say, you know, you know I'm just very skilled. He says, the Lord delivered it in my hands. That's how false prophets are. They're brazen to lie to your face. You know, these, you know, even think of the Benny Hens, the extreme example. They stand up and they claim that they are doing all of these miracles in the name of the Lord. They have all these things rigged where they lie to people and pay them off and they've been busted tons of times and they're bringing people up and they're lying to an audience and saying and acting like they're ministers of righteousness when they gave this guy money behind the scenes prior to come up here and act like, hey, act like I healed your leg. You stinking devil. That's wicked. That's super wicked. And say, hey, the Lord gives me this ability. I'm able to do this because the Lord. That's how false prophets are. They're brazen. They're brazen. They'll just lie straight to your face. They don't have a conscience. They're clouds without water, like the Bible says. They're, they're, they're just empty. They have no soul on the inside. And they'll lie straight to your face. And they'll lie in the name of the Lord and they won't care. They're ministers of unrighteousness is what they are. I want you to keep looking. And remember that skepticism of Isaac. It says this, And Isaac said, verse 21, And Isaac said unto Jacob, Come near, I pray thee, that I may feel thee, my son, whether thou be my very son Esau or not. Why is he doing that? You think he does that when Esau comes in there every time? Because he's skeptical. He's skeptical right now. So he's like, come here and let me feel you. Come here and let me feel you. The false prophets, they know that there are certain characteristics that we have. They know that we have certain tenets of our belief. You know what they'll do? They'll study what we believe. They'll look at what true born-again Baptists believe. And they'll try to mimic that so that they're able to repeat it. And, they, and that they, they look like a Baptist. So he wants them to bring him here because what's he going to do? He's going to try to, you know, because they know Baptists test the spirits, right? They try the spirits. So he's like, hey, come here, let me, let me check it out, right? How we, if somebody comes in, we'll ask them the questions, make sure they're saved, right? Ask them, you know, uh, if somebody visits the church, you'll ask them, you know, the questions, just like you'd ask somebody at the door. So we want to check them out. So he's like, hey, come here, let me check out this false prophet. You're going to ask him the questions? 
You know? This is his appearance, of course. Look at verse 22. And Jacob went near unto Isaac his father, and he felt him, and said, watch this, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. What did he do? He transformed himself into the righteous seed, if you will. He transformed himself into Esau. He made himself look like Esau. Do you know why? Because he's being subtle. He wanted to try to have, you know, every, he wanted to transform himself into the ministers of righteousness. When a false prophet creeps in, they've thought all this out. I want you to look at verse number 25. I want to get to a certain point here. And he discerned him not. So notice, right now what happened? He sold. Isaac is sold now at this point. Why? Because he was basing it on how he felt. He was basing it on how he looked. Look at what it says. Because his hands were hairy as his brother Esau's hands. And then it says this. So he blessed him. Notice the strong skepticism. But then what did he do? He relied upon the way that he looked. He relied upon the outward appearance. He relied upon how he felt. He felt him. But why was he skeptical to begin with? What was it that made him skeptical? His voice. Do you know the, the, the best lesson that you learn from this symbolism here? When you want to identify a false prophet, it's not by looking at them. Because they can transform themselves and look just like you. They can look just like Esau. It's not by just, you know, does he carry a King James Bible? Because they can put the goat skins on their arms. They can put on Esau's garment. They'll even smell like him. You know, I don't know how Baptists smell. Maybe like fried chicken or something, right? But they'll smell like him. They'll look like him. And if you look at them, what do they look like? They look like a minister of righteousness, don't they? They transform themselves. You know what Satan looks like? Looks like an angel of light. He doesn't look like an angel of darkness. They don't just walk in like a, you know, like a, like a ravening wolf. That's not what they come in here like, is it? They look like us. They look like a born-again believer. But do, you, but do you know what? Do you know what made him skeptical to begin with in the very beginning? And you know how to, to peg a false prophet? By their voice. Amen. It's by their words. If you want to find out who a false prophet is, you get them by their words. You get them by what they say or what comes out of their mouth. Matthew chapter number 12, verse number 33 says this, Either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt. For the tree is known by his fruit. Then it says this, O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. Do you know how you peg a false prophet? It's not based on their proselytes. It's not based on their works or how they live their life. It's based on their words. It's the same way you find out whether anybody is saved. You ask them what they believe. You listen to them preach. Because you know what you're going to find out? They have on the sheep's clothing. They have on the goat skins. But you need to find out what's inside their heart. 
And if you ask them what they believe about something, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And you know what you'll find out? That's an evil tree on the inside of that. There's a ravening wolf underneath that clothing. And Isaac was real close to finding out, wasn't he? But then all of a sudden, he went down the path where he was trusting in his feelings. He started looking at him. He's like, you know what? He looks right. He feels like Esau. But you know what? You know the reason why he didn't detect him? Was because he didn't base it on his words. Because if he would have based it on his words, he knew it wasn't him. That's why he was real skeptical. He knew it wasn't him. He knew... He, there was something about it. That's why he said, come here. How did you find it so quickly? And then it, nothing was making sense. Right? And then he came and he said, you know what? He looks right. He discerned him not. He just went away from the words. But he almost caught him. Luke 6.43 says this, For a good tree bringeth not forth corrupt fruit, neither doth a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. For every tree is known by his fruit. For of thorns men do not gather figs, nor of a bramble bush gather they grapes. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaketh. You know how you peg a false prophet? By his words. You listen to the message that he's preaching. You listen to the words that he's speaking and you listen to what's coming out of his mouth. And you know what it'll tell you? It'll tell you whether or not that's a corrupt tree. Do you know why? Because a corrupt tree cannot bring forth good fruit. So you ask him, what do you believe about the gospel? You look and see what he preaches. You look and see what he believes on how to get to heaven. When we knock on doors, what do we ask? Hey, do you know for sure if you die today you're going to heaven? Oh, that's a good answer. If they tell you, yeah, that's what I always say. You know, flatter them a little bit, right? Have men's persons and admonition? No, I'm just kidding. So you ask them the question, you know, how do you know for sure you're going to heaven? Well, you know, what do you think you have to do there? What, what do you believe you have to do there to get there? And then they, you know, they'll respond. And you know, when a person tells you, well, I think I'm going to heaven because, you know, I'm a good person. Or if you hear, let's, let's just use a, an example of a false prophet. If you hear some guy standing up behind a pul pulpit and he's preaching a message of, you got to be a good person to get to heaven. You got to have works. If you don't have the works, that just shows you don't have the faith. What do you say about that guy's salvation? Not saved. Why? Because the way he looked? It's like he's not dressed like a Baptist, right? Is that why? No, we know. We don't base it on how he feels. We don't base it on whether or not he's wearing Esau's garment or whether he's got goat skins on, right? That's not what we base it on. You base it on his words. And that'll tell you whether there's a corrupt tree inside of there. Genesis chapter 27 verse number 35 says this. And he said, Thy brother came with subtlety and hath taken away thy blessing. I want you to notice how it says he came. With what? With subtlety. Why? Because that's how false prophets operate. They come with subtlety. They come and they're very deceptive. They're very cunning. They're very crafty. They're wily. They have tricks. They plan it out beforehand. It's Satan that's, that's really using them and they're just an instrument behind it. They come in and they dress the part. They put the goat skins on. They put the, the clothing on. They look like 
an independent Baptist, don't they? They sound like an independent Baptist. They may even call themselves an independent Baptist. They might even use the King James Bible, right? So, I don't know if anybody knows what this has been leading up to, but obviously all of this has been going on with, with Dane Johansson, right? When this got originally brought up to me, I, you know, you know, uh, foolishly just said, hey, without, I shouldn't have even gave my opinion, but I foolishly, to a few different people, even six months ago, right, when, you know, I heard about this coming about, I said, well, maybe the guy's, you know, saved, or hopefully he's saved, or he's probably saved, he's just screwed up in false doctrine. But I said that before I had listened to the fruit, before I had listened to the fruit of his lips to find out whether there was a good tree on the inside, Right? You know, it wasn't just that I looked at him or anything, right? I, I assume that Anderson didn't have this bad of judgment, that he hadn't went downhill this bad. Even just last week when we all talked about this, I said, yeah, there's, there's probably a good chance the guy's saved, but if he's messed up in false doctrine, then I don't, you know, I think Anderson should stay away from him, right? That was a discussion that we had when we were outside. That was my opinion until I kind of started looking into what this guy believed. You know, I started, I started listening to the fruit of his lips. I started listening to the fruit that he brings forth to see whether it was good or whether it was evil. Because that was going to tell me whether he was a, a good tree or whether he was an evil tree. <clears throat> so I chose out a sermon that I listened to today. I actually went myself. I listened to some other stuff the other day and I already had my mind made up based upon what he had said the other day that the guy is, the guy is not saved. But I even went today to do my own research. I went to his, I went to his, uh, uh, his website. So he is, he is the pastor of of, uh, what is it, Argo or Agro? Agro is what it is. Agro Baptist Church. Agro Baptist Church. And what does Stephen Anderson keep saying? He's an independent Baptist. That sounds right, doesn't it sound good? But you know what he's leaving out? He's an independent Reformed Baptist. He's not just, he's not an independent fundamental Baptist. He's, it sounds very similar to us, doesn't it? It's very close, but there's a subtle difference. An independent Reformed Baptist. Now, anybody who is familiar with Reformed theology or Reformed Baptist, what that means is that you follow the teachings of John Calvin. He, this man is a Calvinist. Dane Johansson is a Calvinist. Now, he's not just a light Calvinist, a one-point Calvinist, a two-point Calvinist. The guy, you know, uh, um, he actually adheres to the uh, uh, Confession of Faith of 1689 of Baptists. The Baptist, the famous Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689, which is hardcore Calvinist. That's what it is. These men are Reformed Baptists. They're hardcore Calvinists. He is a five-point Calvinist, and he believes, teaches, and defends all five points of tulip. All of them. Every last one of them. He calls himself a Baptist. Do you know the other feature that he has? Along with you know, Esau's clothing, you know what else he has? He's got a King James Bible under his arm. So supposedly the guy is King James. He's a King James guy. And even Stephen Anderson is, is in on this deception. And this is a big stinking deal. And I didn't think it was that big of a deal. But Stephen Anderson repeats over and over again, he's a King James guy. He's a King James guy. Well, he's wording that in a very subtle way. Because he's not a King James guy like Brother Rick is a King James guy. And he's not a King James guy like I'm a King James guy. He's not a King James guy like anybody in this church is a King James guy. So stop trying to act like he's just like me. He's not like I am. And he's not an independent Baptist like I am. You know, if you want to call him anything, he's a TR guy. 
That's what he would be, a Texas Receptus guy. And in a recent video, he actually claimed that I'm going to show you this to be a lie. He actually claimed that he believed this Dane Johansson guy, that he believed that the King James Bible was inerrant and, and perfect and pure, right? Does anybody remember him saying that in his video? He said he didn't think that it, he thought that it was he thought that the, the, the Greek text, this is how he worded it. He thought that the Greek text, he believes that the Greek text was preserved unto this day, and God preserved it. It's perfect how it is. And he said, and I believe the King James Bible to be an accurate translation of that. What does that mean? If this is perfect and pure, and then you have an accurate translation into English, then what do you have in English? Exactly what you have in Greek. So he believes, and I can reword it my way if I want, it's the same thing. He believes that it's perfect in the English. Believes that the Greek's perfect and it's accurate, been accurately translated. He, believe, he claims, that supposedly he says in the video, that it's perfect and pure. He's a liar. He does not believe that. <clears throat> so I'm going to read to you from a sermon that I listened to today. And the, um, the title of the sermon was, I believe it was, Whoever sins does not know God. That's the title of the sermon. Whoever sins does not know God. And I thought, this has got to be a winner right here. So I clicked on that. And I know, I know exactly, I knew exactly where that comes from. I, I, I'll, I'll tell you in a minute. I knew exactly what was, he was going to say. And I knew where it was going to come from. And I'll tell you why. This is what Dane Johansson of Agro Baptist Church said. And this is, I typed it out. I might have made some errors. And I was typing while I was playing it and pausing it and going back and forth. But this is what he said. If you look at the bulletin, I have provided for you my own translation of our passage this morning. Hopefully this translation will shed a little light on what I mean by whoever sins does not know God. Now, let me ask you this question. Can you imagine me standing up here and telling you that I have provided in the bulletin my own translation? That makes me angry even reading that. I would have got up out of that stinking church and I would have slammed that door so hard I would have broke the hinges. I have provided for you my own translation in your bulletin, Brother Russell, and hopefully this can help you understand it. It's so stinking ridiculous! Does that sound like a King James guy? You've got to be kidding me! This is what it says. This is his translation. Every person... Practicing sin also practices lawlessness. And all sin is lawlessness. Every sinning person has not seen him, nor has that person known him. Turn to 1 John 3. Look up on, in the ESV on your phone. I believe it's the ESV. I should have looked this up. I totally spaced on this. Look up 1 John 3, that passage. In 1 John 3, um, every person practicing sin. I believe it's like verse 11. i got to look it up too. I don't even, did, you, did you find exactly where that's located in 1 John 3? Oh, is it that soon? Okay. Whoops. So I want you to look at this passage. <clears throat> yeah, it's verse 4. That you're exactly right. It's verse 4. Yep. And it goes down to, yeah, verse 5. So your Bible, the King James Bible, 1 John 3, 
Verse 4 says, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And ye know that he was manifested to, to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. So, Daniel Hansen provides a translation from the ESV. Is it the ESV? I thought that it was. Go ahead and read 1 John chapter number 3, verse 4 and 5 from there. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he, he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Okay. This is Dane Johansson's translation. <clears throat> Every person practicing sin also practices lawlessness. Sound familiar? It's almost exactly what? The ESV. Do you know how I knew that? I knew already this, there's, a, there's a huge controversy over these particular passages. And specifically, Calvinists have a, 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 a fit about how to interpret these passages. And what they've done is they've accompanied their interpretation in, the, in uh, the version of the ESV. The ESV is the Calvinist Bible. That was the other giveaway. The ESV is the Bible of the Calvinist. All Calvinists use the ESV. Do you know what James White's favorite Bible translation is? The ESV. The ESV. So, I also looked up something else, too. And I'm going to get to his interpretation of that passage. Now, number one, if your Bible read that way, you would have a major contradiction. And the fact that you would believe that that's what it should say, you know what that tells me? The way that you interpret salvation the way that you view salvation in the Bible. Every person practicing sin also practices lawlessness. And all sin is lawlessness. Every sinning person, watch this, has not seen Him. So what does He mean by every sinning person? Every practicing sinning person, right? That's what His interpretation of that is. Has not seen Him, nor has that person known Him. Do you know why Calvinists like this interpretation, like this translation of 1 John chapter number 3? Because they believe in works salvation. And do you know what this interpretation of this passage teaches? Works salvation. Do you know what it's actually teaching in 1 John 3? It's talking about the flesh and the spirit. And you know why they can't understand it? Because they're not spiritually discerned. Because they don't have the Holy Spirit in them. And they believe in a work salvation, so when they come to the Bible, you know how they're interpreting it? In the way that they view salvation. The way that Dane Johansson... Why would he accept a translation that, that teaches work salvation? Because he believes in work salvation. That's why. <clears throat> so this guy claims to be a King James Bible guy. Does that sound like a King James Bible guy? This guy claims that he believes in you know, the gospel of grace. Right? And it's only by grace through faith and that's it. He went on to say this. If at any point in time a person claiming Christ falls into sin, they have an advocate before the Father. So he's saying a person that actually claims Christ falls into sin, they have an advocate before the Father. Then he says this. However, in our text this morning, the verb practicing sin is in the present active tense. This points us to a different idea. Then he says this. An idea of someone who continuously, actively, and presently makes an unrepentant, habitual lifestyle of sin. And then he says this. 
That's the difference. So Stephen Anderson can try to be as deceitful as he wants to be by saying, hey, we also believe, you know, we believe the same thing as this guy. We believe what? That if somebody, you know, turns out to be a sodomite, well, then we'd all say that that person was never saved. Now, I believe that. I believe in the reprobate doctrine. If somebody, you know, seemingly says the right things, but then later on I find out this person's a sodomite, I'm, I'm going to not believe your salvation. I'm not going to believe that you're saved. Right? Because there's also the doctrine of reprobation in the Bible. So he tries to, to point out this one, this one little similarity. Like, hey, he's like us. What's he trying to convince you? He's a Baptist. He's a King James guy. He's, he's saved. He believes like us. Right? We believe that, hey, we believe the same thing as him. Do we believe that if someone goes on practicing sin that they're not saved? Do we believe that a person can't live a, a, a life of sin and still get to heaven? Is that what we believe? So, he, so Stephen Anderson purposely leaves out that not only does this guy believe that, hey, if somebody becomes a sodomite, then that just proves that they weren't saved all along, right? Because that's what it would be because we believe in the doctrine of eternal security. It just, you know, that would show that that person was never saved if they turned out to be a sodomite later, right? Well, this guy is saying that if a person has a profession of faith, but then they go and they live in fornication, like he says, right? He uses, you know, the wording like Brother Anthony I was talking about. It's kind of weird wording. Where he talks about them, you know, uh, you know, messing around, if you will, in youth group. It's like you sound like a pervert using that kind of wording behind the pulpit like that. Why are you bringing up little kids doing that kind of stuff anyways? It's weird and strange, isn't it? Super weird. And he's like, and that, that's his, you don't want to know his example? It's not a sodomite. It's some kid committing fornication. That's what he says. You were never saved. What's the guy basing, when he looks at somebody, what does he look at to determine whether or not they're saved? Their works. What does he think is getting someone to heaven? They're, I don't give a crap where you put the works, whether it's before salvation, with salvation, or after salvation. If you try to push works in there, it's going to be a subtle change, my friend. They want to come in and deceive you. They want to come in the back door, and that's what they do. They try to load it in somewhere where you're not going to notice it. They try to slip it in here, slide it in there, and you know what it comes? I don't care where you put the works. If you look at somebody and say, hey, he doesn't have the works, he's not saved, you're not saved, buddy. You have a false gospel. That's not the gospel of grace. That's not the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace is by faith alone, period. He paid it all, all to him I owe. He's the one that died for me. It's by his grace that I'm saved. And you know what I do? I supply the faith. And no, he doesn't supply the faith for me. I supply the faith. And he saves me, and it's everything that he did. And all I do is believe. I can live whatever life that I want to live, and I'd still go to heaven. Now, you know, should, you know, should we continue in sin that grace shall abound? God forbid. But guess what? I could or that verse wouldn't make any sense. That's right. to first be true that I could continue in sin and grace would abound or you couldn't even ask the question, stupid. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. You know what? You shouldn't. But you know what? You could. Right. You might you'd be punished by the Lord, but you could continue in sin. 
That's the true gospel. No works, period. Not here, not here, and not afterwards. And I don't care where you put them. You're a stinking devil. You don't believe the King James Bible. You're not a Baptist. You're a stinking Calvinist. I have nothing in common with that guy. I don't give a crap where Stephen Anderson goes. I don't care if I learned under him. I don't care if I learned things from him. He's a stinking moron. That guy is, is, is yoking up with some stinking unsaved Calvinist devil. That's what he is. He's a devil. That guy got on the camera and lied his stinking butt off. He tried, to, he tried to make the people listen to that video think that he was a King James only guy, didn't he? What was he trying to make you believe? I'm like you. I believe the King James Bible is perfect and pure. He didn't use those exact words. But he was very subtle about it, wasn't he? Did he say, hey, I believe it has errors? That, hey, I have, I have other translations that I make sometimes. I like to refer to the ESV sometimes. Did he say that? He wouldn't have said that on the camera. He was subtle. He tried to give you just enough information to make you think he's like you. He tried to tell you, hey, I believe that salvation is by grace through faith alone. The guy stinking said on the camera that he believes that Jesus only died for the elect, no more and no less. That guy is a stinking five-point Calvinist. That's what he is. He's a stinking, dirty, rotten, false prophet is what he is. He's a, he's a prime example of it. And Stephen Anderson's such a stinking fool, he's taking the video. He's so blinded, he takes this damning video and posts it on his stinking channel. Plugs it in on his channel. There's like 500 comments like, man, I'm more confused now than I was before. It's like, what in the world is wrong with you? This is a major deal. When we talked about this outside, I didn't know how big of a deal it was. And I actually was like, I think Joe Major went too far. I'd stay as far away from that guy as I stinking can. Amen. I would stay, I would cut ties with Steven Anderson over this. That guy is not a little confused. That guy is a devil. That Dane Johansson is a wicked, false prophet, and he wants to yoke up with other Baptists. Isn't that kind of weird? Wants to make documentaries with other Baptists. You're not a Baptist like I'm a Baptist. We don't have the same forefathers in the faith. We're not the same, you fool. You look up his influencing uh, uh, um, people in his life. Do you know who they are? I kid you not. John Piper. Charles Spurgeon. You know who else he mentions? John Calvin. These are his influencing. influencing. And you know, guess what happened? I tried to go to the guy's uh, uh, website. He took down half the pages. Why? He took down half the stinking pages. I couldn't find any of it. You know who else he says? John MacArthur. John MacArthur. Well, I want you to listen to this. I knew where that would come from, 1 John 3. Because I know who everybody loves today in the Calvinist movement. Even more so than John Piper. Oh, I forgot. Paul Washer. That dude, if I hate a false prophet, I hate him. I hate a lot of false prophets, so let me tell you, I hate him. I hate Paul Washer with every ounce of my body. I have heard that guy mock and disparage men that were clearly saved and just sit there and make fun of them the fact that they were trusting in John 3.16 alone to be saved and that they were eternally saved. And he sat there and made fun of it and mocked it. That guy is a stinking devil. And if you look at the gospel that he preaches and say, hey, he's an influencing character, you know, person in my life, I'm very questionable, questioning, strongly questioning your salvation. And then now that I hear the fruit out of your own mouth, now I know for a fact that you're not saved. When you look at, when somebody approves of someone's salvation that is clearly not saved, and they hear them saying like, 
very clear. They've heard this person preach the gospel. He's, he's influenced him, he said. So he's heard all the same clips you've heard. He's heard him you know, uh, mock and make fun of and preach against easy believism. And you know what he says? He's influenced me in my life. Think about this. He is an influencing character, influential in my life. Paul Washer is well known for attacking easy believism. You know he's well known for attacking our gospel. He's well known for attacking the gospel of grace. That's what he's well known for. There's video after video where he stands up and it seems like all of his sermons, all of them, are just attacking the gospel of grace. What if I went to a door? Let's, you put yourself, each person can virtually put yourself in this situation. I went to a door and you said, hey, I'm going to go soul winning with Pastor Baker today. I went to a door and I knocked on somebody's door. And I said, hey, I'm you know, Pastor Baker I'm from a local Baptist church. We'd like to invite you to the church. They took the invitation. I said, hey, you know, more importantly, come to our church. We're going around and we're asking everybody the most important question in the world. God forbid if you were to die today, do you know for sure if you'd be in heaven? And they said, yeah, I know for sure. I said, well, that's great to hear. We don't hear that all the time. How do you know for sure? And they said, because I live a good life. Because I keep the commandments. And then I said to that person, God bless you, brother. I'll see you in heaven. Shook his hand, turned around and walked away. What would that be an indicator about what I believe? What would it tell you? That what that guy said is what I believe gets you to heaven. That's not every single time, right? Right? Some people can be, you know, not necessarily confused, but just they don't know, under the, understand verbiage. Obviously, that's real stinking clear there. But I'm saying sometimes people maybe misunderstand like what somebody means by repentance. They're like, whoa, I didn't know that's what he meant by repentance. Yeah, that guy's not saved. But if, if you witness that, what would you think when you and I were walking away from that door? My pastor might not be saved. Wouldn't you? Like, goodness sakes. If Dane Johansson believes that Paul Washer's saved, if Dane Johansson believes that John Piper saved, if Dane Johansson believes that John MacArthur saved, if Dane Johansson believes that John Calvin, what's up with all these stinking Johns that are Calvinist? If he believes that Charles Spurgeon is saved, that's a big red flag. These are people that are known for like vehemently preaching against the true gospel. Like that's what their ministries are built upon. They're like a stinking Ray Comfort. And these are the people that have, not only does he think they're saved, they have influenced him more than anyone else. Stephen Anderson is, a, is Nebuchadnezzar is what he is. That guy has lost his ever-loving mind. That guy, is, has, he has the mind of a stinking beast, it feels like. These stupid, stupid things that he's been doing. Listen to this. This is from John MacArthur. He says this. <clears throat> Here, I'm going to read you from the passage that he reads, some of it. It's the ESV. I could have just done this. I didn't even think about that. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. And you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one abides in him. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. And then he reads a couple other verses. And then he says this. This is straight out of John MacArthur's mouth. Now that final verse sums up essentially what the text is about. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. How can you tell a Christian from a non-Christian? How can you tell someone who is born again from someone who is not? How can you tell someone in the family of God from someone in the family of the devil? The answer? Anyone who doesn't practice righteousness 
is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Clearly, it is obvious whether a person is a Christian or a non-Christian by virtue of whether or not they practice righteousness or practice sin. That couldn't be more clear. There's nothing about that that is unclear or vague or obscure. <clears throat> Who here thinks John MacArthur saved? Anybody? Nobody. Danger Hansen does. That what he just now preached is, is the exact same that Danger Hansen preached. What John MacArthur preached? What's the difference? Nothing. He just preached the exact same thing. Why do you, how can you ID and tell that guy's not saved? By the way he speaks. He'll try to look like you. He'll try to act like you. He'll call himself a Baptist. He'll say he's a King James guy. There's clear deception here. Why wouldn't he just come right out and say, hey, I don't believe the King James Bible is perfect. Why would he try to make it sound like he does? Why did, why, even Stephen Anderson's in on the deceit. Why does he keep saying independent Baptist? Why does he keep saying that? What is he? Do you know what the name of his church is if you go to his website? Agros Reformed Baptist. That's what he actually calls his church. Because he's trying to make you think that, hey, we're alike. We look alike. You know, we, we have on, you know, look at, look at, I'm wearing Esau's garment. I have on the goat skins on my arms. I smell like Esau. I have the, the, the same Bible as you. We carry the same Bible. He's not like us. This guy's not saved. And you know how you know? This is super important because this is a major... Uh, um, doctrinal mistake, not doctrinal, but misunderstanding that Stephen Anderson had with interpreting what it means to you know, uh, uh, judge somebody based on their fruits. And do you know what the, what the real interpretation of? Of the passage that says that a tree is known by its fruit. Do you know what the fruit is? It's the words. Do you know how Isaac could have known that he was being deceived? And how he could have known he was being lied to? is if he would have went with his, his original gut when he heard his voice and he heard his words. If he would have based it solely and only on that, you know what he would have said? You're not. You're not Esau. You're Jacob. Why? Because he knew that that, that one, He could hear. That didn't sound like Jacob under that garment. You know what it was? It was a devil. You know, who's, you know who this is? trying to creep in to these movements, trying to creep in to Baptist churches. This, this is a common, a super common tactic that takes place. And I don't know if you know this or not, where Reformed Baptists yoke up with Independent Baptists. This is not something that's, that's unheard of. This is common, where, you know, King James, Reformed Baptist, Calvinist, and then you, before you know it, that Baptist church is teaching Calvinism. Before you know it, they, you know, it, they say, hey, we, we believe you know, you know, the fifth point of TULIP and that's it. Perseverance of the saints. You can never find me teaching that I don't believe in perseverance of the saints. And these clips all fly up. <laughs> Years go by and we, that's, this is how churches get corrupt. No church ever stays good. None of the churches that, that existed at the time of John writing the book of Revelation, none of them exist. All of them ended up being corrupted by leaven, by false doctrine eventually. 
Every last one of them, eventually. No church is immune to this. False doctrine will creep in. It's very important to, to, to be aware of this, to be vigilant. You know what you look for? You look for their words. You listen to the words. If you're going to bust a false prophet, you don't look and see how he looks. Hey, is he a Baptist? That's not enough. Does he have a King James Bible? That's not enough. I don't care what stinking garment he's got. He could have a tie on. He could, be, he could dress and he could be my stinking clone. But I'm going to say, hey, you know, Tyler Baker, tell me what you believe. I just envision myself looking at myself in a tie and everything. Tell me what you believe. How do you believe you're going to get to heaven? And if he tells me, you know, faith plus works. Faith, true faith is always accompanied by works. You know what I say? You're not saved. You're trusting in your works. You know what that guy's doing? I want you to think about it, put yourself in the... Because this may be confusing to some people. But I want you to put you in his personal shoes. Do you know how he's examining whether he's saved or not? It's not based on whether he's trusted Christ. He's thinking, am I good enough? Have I been good enough? Think about that. Isn't that the same thing a Pentecostal's doing? Am I good enough? Have I been good enough? You know what they're trusting in? Faith plus works. You know what they do? They just subtly put a little bit of works in there. That, hey, it's just over here. It's just an evidence of salvation. It just proves you're saved. That's a corrupt gospel. That's a subtle change, and you're a stinking devil, Dane Johansson. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, God... <clears throat> We thank you, dear Lord, for um, the, the warnings about false prophets. We thank you, dear God, for uh, uh, you know, caring about us and dying on the cross for us. But not only that, warning us about the deceptions out there so that we can, we can uh, go on to live a, a Christian life, a strong Christian life, and not be thrown off track you know, by uh, people that are coming in and lying in wait to deceive us, dear Lord, giving us all the characteristics and all the, the red flags of a, of a false teacher or a false prophet, dear Lord. We thank you for the depth in the Bible. The, the great symbolism that we can learn from you know, different passages and applying it to other things that are taught elsewhere in the Bible. Just the, all the many great things that we can learn from the Bible. We thank you so much for it. And uh, uh, we ask you that you'd be with us, dear Lord. Be with this church and uh, uh, be with it throughout my existence and the next pastor, however long that it exists until, until you come back, that it might remain a bastion of, of, uh, of true doctrine and, and, and fight against false doctrine and take a strong stance against it and, and, and not allow it to creep up but to nip it in the bud. We ask you to be with us. Bless all the families that are here tonight. Bless the visitors. We love you so much. And in Jesus Christ's name, amen.